Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. Conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute, and today we're talking to Dr. Brian Loritz. Brian's teaching pastor at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, president and founder of Kynos Movement and vice president of regions for the SEND Network. He's author of several books, including The Dad Difference, The Four Most Important Gifts You Can Give to Your Kids, and his latest is The Offensive Church, Breaking the Cycle of Ethnic Disunity. But before we talk to Brian, we want to remind you that if you're enjoying these uh, interviews, uh, leave us a review. But first, let's go to Ed Stetzer, editor-in-chief of Outreach Magazine and the dean of Talbot School of Theology. I mean, so uh, Brian has been on the podcast before. Yeah, he's also been on the radio show, so I get him confused sometimes. But uh, Brian's Brian's a friend. Uh, This is an important topic for, I think, for us to discuss. Brian and I have a little history around this, too. We'll we'll talk about as we go through this. We did a broadcast from the uh, National Civil Rights Museum, the site of the Lorraine Motel. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about those things as well. And, and Brian, I guess the question I just want to start with is for, I mean, the whole theme of the book, I mean, it's a little tricky because the word offensive can mean different things depending upon usage, but we're talking about going on the offense about addressing some of these issues rather than being on the defense. But it seems to me that a lot of the conversations we're having in 2020, uh, led to people then going back on the defense on some of these issues by 2021 and 2022. You're calling them to step into the conversation. Talk to us a little bit about why you think that's important in the time we find ourselves. Yeah, Ed, thanks. Uh, honestly, uh, the title is meant to be a bit of a double entendre yeah. uh, because I don't think we can truly play offense without um, offending some people. So it's not meant to be contentious or any of that, but it's just kind of the nature of the of the beast. Yeah, I, I think, you know, over my years just doing this work, uh, I think the race conversation kind of rises and falls with what's happening in our world and the news cycle. And so George Floyd happens uh, and there's kind of this rush of give me something to read. Let's talk about it. Let's do a message and praise God for that. But then, you know, the the marches subside, the news cycle dies down and we kind of go back to business as usual. And I think basically our posture has been one of defense when it comes to the race conversation. And I want to anchor all this in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, I'm guessing you all have been to Caesarea Philippi and you walk in and there's that big rock platform uh, where the festival of Pan was held, uh, which was this highly immoral festival. And Jesus marches his disciples in and he ultimately says upon this rock, I will build my church. I remember the first time being in Caesarea Philippi and uh, I was with a guy by the name of Ray Vanderlyn and Ray pointed to that rock which blew my mind because I was always schooled that the rock was Peter's confession. And historically Catholics have said, no, the rock is Peter itself. And it just kind of clicked that Jesus says, I'm going to build my church in immoral settings and places and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. And as we know, gates guard, gates play defense. And so Jesus postures hell on the defensive and church on the offensive and so we want to use that text in the book to talk about what is a way in which we can play offense when it comes to what I call ethnic unity. Hmm. Yeah, when it comes to the United States, uh, racial division, and then the American church in particular, and there are a lot of other books that have been helping us understand this. But uh, uh, Brian, from your perspective, your own experience, like give us some examples where you see like here, here are the divisions that exist still. 
and they become more sophisticated maybe and specific around black white issues? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. I, I want to clarify the the book. I, I did. I really tried my best in the book to not limit the discussion to the what what some have called the black white binary, right? Um, I think the COVID pa pandemic revealed a lot of tension. A lot of hate was uh, really levied towards our Asian siblings, and so this is definitely supersedes that. But historically the polarization has been most entrenched among uh, blacks uh, and whites. This book, while looking at some of the issues and the problems, I wanted it to be really solution driven and oriented. But one of the problems that we talk about is the fundamentalist modernist controversy that happened in the earlier part of the 20th century, where essentially you had people who said, some people said the gospel is really just vertical. It's my, me and my relationship with God. Um, the progeny of the fundamentalists are what we would today call evangelicals. And the great thing about them, they were very much committed to truth. They were anchored in truth. The downside is many, most fundamentalists did not march in the streets with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. during the civil rights movement. On the flip side were the modernists, their progeny today, we would call the progressives or liberals. And they said, no, the gospel is primarily horizontal. Just love your neighbor. The problem with the modernists is uh, that uh, they didn't have any kind of anchored truth to keep them grounded. And it was just a matter of time until they went over the abyss uh, into, into heresy. But I think when we look at the, at the gospel, uh, when we look at all of scripture, Jesus would say, yes, the gospel is both vertical and horizontal. Uh, vertical is of first importance, Paul would tell the Corinthians, but the gospel knows nothing of um, uh, an unforgiving Christian. It knows nothing of a greedy Christian, and it knows nothing of a racially insensitive Christian. So one of the solutions we try to uh, provide in the book is we've got to have a robust gospel um, and a gospel that tethers the vertical with the horizontal. Yeah, and, that, and that's a key part of where you start. You kind of unpack some what it means to have a robust gospel. And, and I think it's worth noting that you know, you, you you do picture and explain this in terms of the, these controversies that are actually out there today with the view of the kingdom of God, with the view of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in the world, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We live between redemption and restoration. It's not solely individual, say, conversion and transformation, but it's also societal impact. But, you know, I'm actually recording this here. Those who see the set behind us, this is being recorded in the Billy Graham Hall. Uh, the Billy Graham Center Museum is right above us. And I take people on a tour and I stand at the place where there's a picture of Martin Luther King Jr. and Billy Graham. And I explain to them there that Graham would later say his greatest or one of his greatest, I'm not sure which it was, regrets was not being involved in the civil rights movement. He actually, um, he opposed some of that. He, he, you know, we have letters back and forth about, you know, King's pushing too fast, things of that sort. And again, later would regret it. So, he didn't march at Selma, for example, that was about it. He, he, he talked about the, the march on Washington and more. So, but the challenge I think is, is that there's a suspicion. There's a suspicion that if we care about these societal issues, that we'll go down a path of theological compromise. And the reason there's a suspicion is there is some correlation that that has happened, that when people were very driven by societal transformation, they lost the focus on personal conversion. You could also say the other way, people are very different by personal confusion. They lost, they lose, lose a concern for their community. So how do we make the case that we can do both of those things, go on the offense to do both of those things? 
Well, look, I, I think there's plenty of examples in church history. I mean, I remember, gosh, maybe about 20 years ago, getting introduced to a man named William Wilberforce and uh, just seeing his robust commitment to the gospel. Um, you know, he gets saved at the age of 25. He happens to be a member of parliament leading a nation that was thriving off of the economic and social evil and injustice of, uh, of slavery. And yet he fought for 20 years. Uh, in fact, there was a group of them called the Clapham sect. And, you know, they did things like, what if we don't eat sugar until slavery is brought down because most of the slaves uh, are, are working the sugar plantations. And yet not once did they lose their robust commitment to the faith. Um, earlier, I mean, there's just so many examples, Christians starting hospitals, Christians caring for orphans. I mean, that's kind of the foundations uh, of our faith. The, the other thing I would say is when people raise that concern, and hear me, it is a good concern. And there are examples of plenty of people. I've got uh, contemporaries and colleagues who it's obvious that their gospel of racial reconciliation is bigger than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're single issue individuals. That's a tension we have to live in and there is room for gross error. The problem I have with a person who lifts that up as, as a pushback is that tends to not work. I don't hear that same argument as it relates to the necessary fight for the unborn, mm -hmm. right? So that same person won't use that same argument. Instead, they'll do the, the exact opposite. We got to lobby, we got to march, we, we got to get the right Supreme Court justices in there. We've got to roll out this plan. Yes and amen to all of that. So I don't, I don't want you to hear, hear me pushing back against that but we just can't limit it to that. You know, so much over the last maybe 20 years or so has advanced the multi-ethnic church and, and the conversation around that. And you think about Michael Emerson, Christian Smith's book, Divide by Faith, that came out uh, roughly about 20, 22 years ago. Uh, and you wrote in your book, uh, Brian, uh, and I'm quote you, it says, I fear followers of Jesus do not act. The strides taken over the last 20 years in the multi-ethnic church will be irreversibly revoked. And I'd like to hear, like, what is it that you saw over the last 20 years that you, you saw was progress? It was good. It was good. But then what you're seeing threatened that in that if we don't actually take action right now, we might actually lose some of the things that we've seen happen over the last 20 years. Great question. I know you guys are numbers and stats people. There was a great stat that came out Um they did a study of the multi-ethnic church in, even, in evangelical spaces. So this isn't the multi-ethnic church in mainline spaces. I think the study ran from 1998 uh, till January of 2020 or 2021. I think it's 2020. And the multi-ethnic church in evangelical spaces had grown from 7% to 22%. So there was a, a tripling effect. That study was done by James Davison Hunter and some of his colleagues Wonderful. What what I felt and heard a lot of a lot during the pandemic, because I think the pandemic was a perfect mixture of, of geographic distance. So now we're quarantined. We can't be together. Racial turmoil and strife. And then you mix in a very, um, a very contentious political campaign that culminated in the January 6th um, insurrection. And because race is always mixed in with that and we weren't together to at least try to hash things out. Um, I heard a lot of individuals uh, and particularly minorities who were a part of multi-ethnic churches just saying there was fatigue, there was frustration. There's this thing in which 
I'm done. Like I've given this project a shot and I don't feel like my pastor said enough or my pastor said the wrong thing. Uh, I'm just out. Um, so I'm waiting on the next round of stats post pandemic to see what the numbers are. But I fear that we have people who've gotten a taste of the multi-ethnic church. The problems hit the fan. They didn't like the response. And now they're just like, I gave it a good try and I'm done. Yeah. It's almost it's almost in the same vein of deconstructing, if that makes sense. Yeah. So we'll we'll drop in the show notes a couple of things about that article in the New York Times called The Black Exodus. It talked about some of the folks leaving, African Americans leaving. Uh, predominantly evangelical spaces. Um, and, and and it is kind of a question. I, I did a consultation with a church. You'd know the name of the church. It's a multi-ethnic church. And with the leaders, um, there was, it was multiracial. It's just, it wasn't just the black white binary. But I remember an African-American uh, elder of the church said, you know, we need to talk more about these issues. And, and it was a good, honest conversation. And those those are often lacking. People staying at the table is a key thing. Um, and then a, an Anglo uh, elder said, you know, I think we've had so many conversations about these things. And it's sort of this tension that's there. But there are questions about what that means for the multi-ethnic church. Also in the show notes, we'll put in the presentation. I did. Uh, I wasn't able to go to the multi-ethnic church conference that Mark Demas does. I was teaching in Oxford. But I did a presentation from there. I went through the history and kind of talked about some of the stats that you're talking about as well. But there is a sense that 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 it's you don't you don't know no one person speaks for everybody you know it's not like well this is what all Asians think or Latinos think or African Americans think but there is a sense that we've got to figure out how to uh, walk this journey together and people are mad around these things you know we we did our broadcast from the National Civil Rights Museum and we had a great response we also had a lot of pushback from that as as well I still remember when you called me and asked me to host it I was like I you don't know you know and then. I was so glad I did, but so so. How do we have these conversations in ways inside the church for people who love the gospel and who love the scriptures, who also see that we've got more to do and far, uh, further to go? What do you think? Yes, I think I think what you all are pointing to is just the reality of what the the New Testament uh, deals with. I mean, listen, the basic norm of the New Testament church was was multi ethnic. Um, you know, it's Romans 1.16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel's power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also the Greek. I actually think this is kind of Paul's missiological playbook. Hmm. I think when Paul walks into a town, first question, where's the synagogue? He wants to he wants to preach Christ to the Jews. But then he's not done. He wants to, because he has a gospel greed to reach the whole town. He doesn't want to just reach a certain demographic. He moves from the Jews to the Gentiles. First uh, Corinthians 18 says that uh, he was reasoning with the Jews and the Greeks um, in Athens. He leaves the synagogue, goes up to Mars Hill, Ephesus. We see the same pattern over and over. And then what emerges um, are these churches where for the first time, Jews are having substantive, consistent encounters with people they were taught to avoid. Because of that, there's the mess. There's a headache. Why does Paul talk so much about food? It's not because he's a foodie. It's because now we've got Jews and Gentiles together and the Gentile family invites the Jewish family over to Sunday lunch. And there's a slab of ribs. Being from Memphis, it was dry rub on the ribs, you know. So it's I guess that's just my way of saying these things. It's it's a headache 
uh, in a multi-ethnic setting, um, but it's, it's definitely worth it. And so here is Paul, he's continuing to drill down and his discipleship strategy, and this is what I try to outline in the book, I, I want people to flip a switch because typically when we talk about ethnic unity, the first thing and oftentimes the sole thing we think about is the sermonic moment. Hmm. And I want to take the pressure off. Should you say something from time to time? Absolutely. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, what grieved me most, and you can just pick an event, whether it's Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor or George Floyd, is you go on Christian social media posts and you read the comments and it's like, wow, we don't know each other. Mm-hmm. We're not spending time with each other. Because if you really knew the other, if you were really in relationship with the ethnic other, not so much that it would change your convictions, you would just speak a lot differently. Hmm. And so what we're trying to do here at the Summit Church and other venues I've been is to really focus on small groups and making sure, you know, we talk about that 80-20 rule, what makes a multi-ethnic church is no one demographic is more than 80%. That's just not for the sanctuary. It's also for the small groups. Hmm. And so let's put people together and just the reality that we've got different perspectives. We don't even have to talk about race. But over time, what's going to happen to you is you're going to develop empathy for the other person. That's what's missing, I think, in our discipleship strategy. It it is interesting how you have conversations with African-American evangelical leaders, conservative evangelical leaders. They just articulate around these issues very differently. And often those conversations don't take place. Again, the book is The Offensive Church, Breaking the Cycle of Ethnic Disunity. And one of the key parts of it is, is kind of creating relational environments for and so this is a kind of tool you you would use in a church to create those kind of uh, relational environments. Yeah. I just want to say you got real controversial talking about Memphis barbecue while you're in North Carolina. That's, that's <laughs> real in North Carolina. What is that? Yeah, this I know, one, right? North this Carolina guy, barbecue is just not good to me. It's vinegar based. <laughs> wow, see, I told wow. you. Controversial. Well, thanks for trying, Brian. We'll see you <laughs> another time. Okay, but you ahead. mentioned it's composition, and I want to get to something. And I want you to be real, Brian, because uh, I, I know you won't hold back. I mean, you're talking about the offensive church. So, but, you know, multi-ethnic churches, and you pointed this out, Ed, in the um, uh, the exit of Black people from predominantly white spaces, but also multi-ethnic churches. Like, multi-ethnic churches often uh, feel homogenous in culture. And then you have to ask the question underneath that, you know, is it just optics? I mean, are we just talking about diversity quota? Uh, and then, you know, and then potentially tokenism, right? And so it's a complicated question when you're talking about not just the composition of the room, but the culture of the leadership and the culture of the church. So like what, what can we do to, to get better at authentic, authentic, like multi-ethnicity and beyond like in the, the, in the, in the relationships and relationships and the, the leadership and the culture of the church. Yeah. I don't want to nerd out on you too much, but there are several different types of multi-ethnic churches. And what you just put your finger on, I think is one of the most difficult kind of churches to engage in. It's the multi-ethnic monocultural church, right, where there's different faces, but it's clear there's a strong master culture here. Um, And when I look at Acts chapter 15, right, so here's Paul and Barnabas, they're coming back, God's done amazing things, they planted these churches, multi-ethnic churches, uh, and then the Judaizers are sliding in behind them, telling these new Gentile converts, 
look, if you want to get to the varsity side of the kingdom, you need to be circumcised. You need to adhere to the works of the law. And these Jewish leaders, First Church Council, Acts chapter 15, they render a verdict. And essentially what their verdict is, is that in the Church of Jesus Christ, there is to be no ethnic home team. That when you've got these different groups coming together, we're not going to make the Gentiles assimilate culturally. Now, it's not a free-for-all, because they do say, here's what we want you to do, but there's, there's latitude to be who you, uh, who you are uniquely and engage in the cultural preferences and norms, right? Um, and, and I think we need more of that. But here's the key to Acts 15 to me. It wasn't Gentiles making that decision. Because culturally speaking, Christianity arises out of some very Jewish cultural norms and practices. Initially, those who were occupying seats of power just happened to be Jewish men. It was those Jewish men who made the decision to give power away. And so I think that's a really important question. If a church really wants to be multi-ethnic, I think those in power have to look for opportunities to responsibly empower people of different ethnicities and cultures. That's Acts chapter six. There's a problem that's arisen. Uh, it just so happens that all of the names of the individuals happen to be Greek names. That was an intentional move. I don't see enough of that happening. I think, and I'll, I'll throw this in here too. One of the things that, that we're really working on, we're establishing a tool right now at the church, is that because this is a discipleship issue, People come into this race conversation all over the map. And essentially at Summit, we've identified three kinds of people when it comes to the gospel and race, the ready, the reluctant, and the resistant. And all of this is based out of John 4. You know, if we had time, I'd walk you through it. But um, the ready is just as it sounds. These are people who are ready to engage. By the way, ready does not mean mature. Sometimes the most immature person in this conversation is the ready because they tend to be single issue focused people. On the other extreme are the are the resistant. Uh, no matter what you say, no matter how carefully you say what you say, they're just not going to be con convinced. They typically are the loudest people. My experience in conservative white evangelical circles is that the largest demographic of people are the reluctant. Uh, they're open but cautious with the right kind of pastoral pace. Uh, and maturity, they can be brought along. And so we're trying to identify where people are and then appropriately lead them into this process of, um, of discipleship. Okay, so um, I, I think this is where, where this is a discipleship issue, but the reality is, is that, uh, reality, as if you're not speaking the reality, but the reality is, is that there is, like I, I just, my our mutual friend, I preached recently for Charlie Dates. And I would use the term centering. There's a kind of a centering culture, and that's African-American cultural context. Now, should I look to or expect that church to be more reflective of multiple cultural expressions? It's in a predominantly, overwhelmingly African-American community. Or let's let's jump over to the Hmong community in, in Detroit. Let's jump over to a predominantly white community in Montana. So what then is our responsibility uh, or desire to think about multi-ethnicity in places where there is not just a, whether you're, you're in Raleigh-Durham, you know, I'm in Southern California. So that's a natural place to be more multi, I think, though it takes work. Does that mean it's true for everywhere, for everyone? How do we do that? 
And I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge this. As a Biola board member, Ed, you are the best hire we've made in recent years. So oh, you're so very gracious, brother. Thank uh, you, have brother. you on board. Um, no, I don't believe every church should be multi-ethnic. Charlie's a good friend of mine. Charlie feels uniquely called to the black community. He needs to be free to do that. That's what that's what the, the surrounding areas of his churches <laughs> of his churches are. Um, we, we here at the summit, what we say is what drives this conversation is an ideology. Uh, it's not politics. Uh, what drives it is mission. In our mission field here. Wait, wait a second. I'm a little confused. Did you say what drives this is ideology or not? You said not. is. I think you meant is, is not. Sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. No worries. It's no worries. Not, is okay. not ideology. What drives it is mission. Okay. Our mission field happens to be 65% white, 35% people of color. And within that, it's Asian, it's African-American, it's, it's Latino. So... We just want to reach our whole mission field okay. and we want our sanctuaries to look like our mission field. Mm. Um, and so let me just say, I, again, I can't say it enough. Not every church should be multi-ethnic. Right. Okay. I, I, yeah. I deal with church planters all the time. I think God burdens a church planter or leader with a specific location. You need to be true to that location. The problem is, Dr. Corey Edwards says, this is one of the things I talk about in the book, is that the average community that a church sits in is 10 times more diverse than the church. And the average schools in the community that a church sits in is 20 times more diverse than the church. So in general, the church is lagging behind. And I, I think I think we I think I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I think why I appreciate what you're writing. And again, just to remind everybody so they can uh, get a get a hold of the book as well. I mean, it's called The Offensive Church. The full title is Breaking the Cycle of Ethnic Disunity. And I think that key thing is that cycle of ethnic disunity is a key that you hear there. So it's a tool resource opportunity to address some of these issues in the local congregation. The, the book came out July 23, so it's new. So I want to encourage you to pick it up as well. So so what are some helpful and harmful ways you've seen churches try to respond well and build better bridges for ethnic unity? So start with some good ways and then maybe help us see some mistakes. Yeah, um, I got a friend of mine who uh, is venturing out in this area and he calls what they're doing ethnic harmony. And he says, our church is making three commitments. We want to learn together, lament together, and live together. Uh, I, think, I think these are just wonderful opportunities. And so, you know, whether or not it's reading a book or uh, they do like a civil rights bus tour that they go to various kind of stops there in the South. They, um, they take opportunities to, to lament together. I, I would actually encourage every church to think about that when some maybe nat, uh, national crisis happens uh, and it's, it's clear that there's a racial undercurrent together. Um, I think we need to do what the Bible says, grieve with those who grieve. I can lament with someone without rendering a verdict. Um, I think that's a very important distinction to make. I know a lot of churches who are hesitant to do anything because they're like, well, let's just wait till we get all the facts. Um, and I see the wisdom in that. But when something is obviously racially motivated, I think we can stop and go, there's a community of people who are hurting here. And this is an important place for me to say a difference. And I do not attach any kind of moral value to this, but a difference between especially black and brown communities and the white community is black and brown communities, we tend to be a lot more communal, meaning um, when George Floyd happened or when there's some national tragedy that involves a black or brown person, 
a black or brown person on the other side of the country is coming to church that Sunday going, please say something, please say something, please say something. That's different than how our white brothers and sisters process things. Uh, they tend to see themselves more as a collection of individuals. Again, I'm not attaching any moral value to that, but you have to understand that's, that's kind of our starting point. And you got to have wisdom to know how do I discern whether or not we need to stop and lament that uh, because there's periods of times when you could be stopping every single week. So there's wisdom there, but we, we have to learn how to sit in the ashes with each other and lament, which is kind of some practical things that my friends are doing. On the other side, what are some destructive things? Uh, man, I consulted with a lot of churches uh, in the aftermath of 2020 because you had well-intentioned leaders who had never addressed these subjects before with their people. And then it happened and they went from zero to 100. And, and there was it, yeah. no kind of training yep. or, or whatever. Again, it's all coming from a good place. Right. Um, and I think now in these times of quiet and peace right now is really when you need to be sitting in a community of other pastors and leaders gathering together for prayer, getting some mentoring and coaching. Again, I've tried to provide a resource to help you um, that I would even prefer be read communally. There's discussion yeah. questions at the end of each chapter and then just going, how can we take some baby steps in this area? And it's kind of counterintuitive because people do rush these conversations in the midst of times of crisis. And then often the end result is they're not thought through when if you take the time now, I, I was talking to uh, my radio show recently with some people who work in disaster relief. Everybody wants to go help in disaster relief. You got to get trained before the hurricane hits, to use example. So this is a great time to have some of those conversations. Again, the book is The Offensive mm -hmm. Church, Breaking the Cycle of Ethnic Unity. Yeah, you mentioned, excuse me, you, you mentioned something I think is important, and you embody this, and you mentioned Corey Little Edwards' work. Um, she she talks about the estranged pioneer. You, you remember that that concept that she develops out? And she saw it specifically around uh, African-American and Asian-American pastors of multi-ethnic churches. And so I, I want to get into your, your story a little bit and maybe uh, be more anecdotal about your personal life. But, you know, when you find that you're, you're the one holding the space for people, when you find that you're the one that's trying to create the space for people and you feel the tensions because you left a predominantly African-American community and now you're in a multi-ethnic or maybe a, a space that's not predominantly African-American, me, you know, a space that's not predominantly Asian-American. And you realize that that space isn't home for you either. And you're kind of, you know, she talks about this liminal space, you know, a strange pioneer. How, how do you deal with that, Brian? How do you, how, when you're no longer in a space that is your cultural heritage in the space that you're trying to create also doesn't quite understand where you come from. You feel estranged. How do you hold that tension? Yeah, it's um, it's a really good one. Um, you know, I, I've i often wanted to um, write something about Jonah, uh, but dealing with kind of the undercurrent, it's not the primary narrative, but there's some race stuff going on with Jonah, right? Like how in the world, God, do you have the nerve to show kindness with these, with this nation that is mistreating us. And Jonah goes down in chapter four in a fit of bitterness. Like there's a root of bitterness, I think, that that happens to Jonah. And I see that a lot uh, with minority leaders. Um, and so I'll just give you one practical thing. A few years in, I had to give myself permission to take what I call uh, regular furloughs. Now, this is very much missional language. Oftentimes when we think of a furlough, we only think of it in terms of kind of foreign missionaries, right? So it's a person who leaves America, they go to another nation, uh, they're engaged, they're another nation, another culture, 
And then we go, of course, after 18 months or after two or three years, come on back to America, get rest, kind of re-engage kind of the home culture, a place that you're familiar with. But, but I don't think that's just for international missionaries. I also think it's for those of us who are doing the work of reconciliation as well. Um, I, I have to have people, and, and my community isn't limited to this, but I, I need to have African-American pockets where I can just engage, kind of culturally exhale, um, and I don't have to code switch anything. I had a great kind of African-American golf group when I lived in Memphis. And we would play a couple of times a month. That was life-giving for me. Little did, did I know it at the time. I didn't have this language, but that was important to my mental health. And so I think you have to go, I, I need to have some people who look like me um, that I can regularly just exhale with. I don't see anything wrong with that. That's not an exclusive thing at all. The other thing I have to remind myself of, and I talk about this in the book, there's a difference between reconcilers and activists. Um, active, we need both. Activists tend to be issue driven. They're concerned about the what. Praise God for that. We need activists. Reconcilers tend to be people driven. We're concerned about the how. So I'm in the people business. Hmm. Um, and I, I don't think I can lead people I'm scared of. I have to lead people that I love. And God's called me to love these people. And that's a posture I try to maintain and take as long as I can. The danger of, of, of Jonah is Jonah, Jonah did ministry to people he didn't love. He didn't like them. Hmm. And in the absence of love, bitterness just kind of came in and took a root. So, Okay, so talk to me a little bit about this congregationally, because that's a big part of, again, the, the, the book is not the offensive Christian. The, the book is not the offensive conversation. It's the offensive church breaking the cycle of ethnic disunity. And I think it's just your, your pastor, of course, your senior pastor is J.D. Greer. Uh, we are aligned on a whole lot of things, but it's interesting that he uh, publicly used the, you know, Christians should say Black Lives Matter. Um, I, I actually did not, uh, partly because of the association with the organization, but was very involved in these conversations. And But part of the language issue comes up here. So what do you say with people who want to use that language, who don't, who disagree about the extent of systemic racism or not, maybe the meaning of the term woke, I don't know, the, the issues of reparations. I mean, people come to different, let me put it this way, people who love Jesus, who care about these issues, come to different conclusions about some of these things in the same church. How do you walk through that together? You know, I think with John 4, that classic conversation Jesus has with the woman at the well, I, I think what Jesus is modeling for us here is that these kinds of conversations are best worked out relationally and not ideologically. As long as the conversation stays at critical race theory, woke, reparations. Like I've never heard two people engage on, take one of those issues, reparations, and at the end of that go, man, I, I, think, I think there's a possibility for us to be friends here. <laughs> like like yeah. that's typically not how it works. Um, we've got to enter these things through the relational door. Um, and it's because of that, that I've said to our minority staff here at the church, there's certain words I don't want us to use. I don't want us to use phrases like white supremacy or white fragility or white privilege. It doesn't mean those concepts are real, but they tend to shut down conversation. 
And what we are trying to do here as a church is not stay at some fluffy level, because I don't think we can have unity unless we deal with those concepts and unless you really hear where I'm coming from. But I'm, I'm interested in a relationship with you. And I don't want to just come in hot and set you on edge. Um, and so to answer your question about Black Lives Matter, should, should a person say it? I, for me, the frustrating thing about the Black Lives Matter conversation, and uh, I'll be the first to say the, the organization, there are things about the organization that are just reprehensible, even as a black person, even taking Jesus out of it. When you have black people say that we want to get rid of the nuclear family, sure. it, that's just offensive to me as a black person for a lot of historical reasons. Here's what's frustrating to me, though. I, the same evangelicals who voted for Trump and all the evangelicals I knew who voted for Trump, it wasn't that they loved Trump. They, they just they love the, the party. They love the platform. They were able to disentangle the person from the party. Right. So they were able to engage a nuance. Re just return the same favor to us. Yeah. Like, you know. I can say Black Lives Matter and clearly not mean support of the organization, sure, sure. but but I'm supporting uh, people. That's yeah. the same. And thing let me say, too. So because what happened, what I, what I would say, like I, I pressed on the issue with people sometimes who would say, and I'd say you got a whole community of people, not everybody, but people who think that maybe their lives don't matter. If you don't want to say those three words, Black Lives Matter, you could articulate that the lives of black people really do matter. And they're. And they would object to that. And that nobody, that's not an organization. So it was clearly there was more to it that was sort of underneath yep. it. But I think all of us should be at the place. And we might, my point is we might disagree on whether or not how those words kind of are strung together or hashtagged. But we all should be able to say that the lives of Black people do indeed matter. And if there's a community that's not sure, the church should be the place that makes it clear that, no, no, no this really does matter to us. And when that couldn't be articulated, then it wasn't just the organization. So I, I agree with you. But what do you do when people have the differences? And how do you work through that? Because you're in North Carolina, you've got, you've got super conservative people, you've got people who are having, you know, very maybe progressive conversations around race, but in your church is, you know, very conservative, theological and other issues. So help us back to because again, the book is the offensive church. How does the church? Is this a small group having conversations about this? Are you avoiding those terms? Talk to us about that. Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say it's it's even more nuanced than what, what you're making it. I mean, our church has 15 campuses. Durham politically is deep blue. Um, right. Raleigh, I think, skews a little red. I mean, so and this is all in the same church. So we just did a three part series on ethnic unity. Pastor J.D. did the first week. I did the second week. Third week, we did it together. The reason why we did that is, remember, our whole focus is how do we disciple a primarily reluctant conversation, uh, congregation in this area? Well, the reluctant, again, that, those three categories, ready, reluctant, resistant, reluctant aren't going to sign up for the race class, right? So we have to infiltrate their system. What is the primary system at our church? Small groups. What is that based on? Sermons. So let's take a sermon series where we talk about these issues, and then that's going to force the the actual small groups to engage in the subject so it's a marathon not a sprint and to be honest ed my wife and i were talking about this the other night i don't think i'm going to really see the full-on fruit of this in my lifetime hmm. so i think and i don't say that to be a pessimist but where a lot of people get in trouble they want to hurry up and fix this <laughs> it's a 400 plus year old problem here right so we do what we can we take some steps 
we're as intentional as we can. Um, but if we move too fast on this, I, I fear we're going to do even more damage. Give us a closing word of exhortation. Pastors and church leaders, again, the book is The Offensive Church, Breaking the Cycle of Ethnic Disunity. In a um, a lull, maybe it's a lull, but of course, you know, when the podcast comes out, we don't know when we're, this conversation is on the front page of every news channel again. Uh, but right now in a lull, why is this the time and what should they do to help have better conversations around issues of race and ethnic unity? Well, I would just keep the main thing the main thing. We are we are gospel people, but I just would, would encourage you to to ask the question, what do you mean when you say the gospel? And of course, the fact that Jesus Christ died in our place and for our sins, and because of the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God. But that reconciliation ministry doesn't stop. The gospel also pushes us to be reconciled to each other. So I just want to encourage leaders uh, to exercise wisdom um, Leadership 101 says we can't take people to places we're not personally traveling to ourselves. And so go on this journey, uh, recruit people to mentor you, ask questions, uh, and then it's going to take some courage. Um, at the end of the day, you can't be a people pleaser and engage in this work at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, there will be people who no matter how carefully and how methodically and how winsomely you hash these things out, will leave. But it's sort of like Jesus in John chapter 6, when the larger group of disciples left, he turns to the 12 and says, do you want to go too? Again, we're not saying that to be snarky or whatever, but it does take a measure of courage anchored in the gospel. You've been listening to Dr. Brian Loritz. Be sure to check out his book, The Offensive Church, Breaking the Psycho of Ethnic Disunity. You can learn more about Brian at brianloritz.com. And thanks again for listening to the Stetzer Church Leader Podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you found our conversation today helpful, leave us a review that'll help other ministry leaders find and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.